I was sitting in a crummy movie with my hands on my chin. All the violence that occurs seemed like we never win. Love and mercy, that's what you need tonight. So, love and mercy to you and your friends tonight. Love and mercy. Welcome to the Thinking God Podcast, where I discuss life with those who have found a path that works for them. And today's guest is special. He is the Hank Williams Jr. of 20th century theology, though I know he will hate that description. But his early books, video series, movies, and speaking engagements helped send evangelicals off the cliff in the 1970s where they remained into the 90s. And he lives in great regret of his two decades plus of extreme religious celebrity and influence. But today he brings a message of hope, love, and more. He is a wonderful man. I am pleased he's joined me for our chat. And Frank Schaefer has walked a path which few others have ventured. From helping set the stage to those aggressive anti-abortion movements, to the emergence of the evangelical right and the Republican Revolution, to finding peace and satisfaction in a very different direction. Frank's story is an amazing one. He is also one of the most honest writers I've ever read and is not shy about discussing any topic. His latest book, which I like very much, offers a general formula that has finally found him peace. It's fall in love, have children, stay put, save the planet, be happy. As one who once hopped around the globe in private jets, Frank has found peace and a spiritual connection staying put and helping raise his grandchildren. His voice remains one that is at peace with himself, and today his confidence plays out in a very different way that avoids all religious dogma. He is a relaxed Frank Schaefer, or at least as relaxed as he gets in my understanding. And devoid of time constraints, we could have had this discussion stretch on for three hours. So I hope to have him back sometime to talk about those things we missed. But Frank Schaefer was a great guest, and I hope you'll enjoy it. We seem to have come from some sort of weird, parallel, bizarro world of fundamentalist Christianity, because we're roughly the same age, but your European version growing up was very different than my deep-fried Southern Baptist fundamentalist upbringing. Uh, That was at a time when Southern Baptists were not friendly towards Calvinism at all. Um, Both paid lip service to, at least intellectually, to the inerrancy of Scripture, but the practice parted in so many ways and I'm sure you've talked to enough American Christians to get a good idea about growing up in the 50s and 60s fundamentalism in, in America compared to growing up where you grew up. What do you see as some of the distinct differences between the fundamentalism you grew up in Labrie and the American fundamentalism at the time? Well, Greg, it's interesting you bring that up because I keep trying to explain to people that if it hadn't been for the last seven or eight years of my dad's life after he got involved with the early um parts of the pro-life movement from the evangelical side and was kind of pegged as a religious right figure because of that you know if anybody had visited his ministry of Labrie in say 1968 and had been asked how do you think this group of people would vote politically I'll bet you most folks, especially from any kind of an evangelical American background, would have pegged Labrie as pretty far left. Because in the evangelical mind, if you were interested in art and culture, if you were doing lectures and seminars on the lyrics of Bob Dylan's latest album, or movie festivals of Bergman and Fellini, or talking about existentialist philosophy, you know, this is not the stuff that was going on at Jerry Falwell's church, you know, as he was embroiled in, in, you know, segregation politics at the time and, and all the rest of that. So, you know, the fact is that I feel kind of bad looking back on my dad's trajectory because, um, you know, he was not this, this person, he was not of the religious right in the sense that most Americans mean it. So, you know, just fast forward to my own exit from the evangelical movement, you know, I think a lot of people would look at that or hear me talk and think that I came out somehow embittered about my background. I mean, that would be the way evangelicals would try to excuse it. Oh, well, he was embittered. He grew up as a missionary child and, you know, pastors, kids have a hard time. Actually, it was nothing like that with me. I began to compare the American fundamentalist and evangelical religious right that I was involved with, people like Jerry Falwell, Pat Robertson, and all the rest of them, 
to the simple days of my parents' ministry, I remembered before it became more politicized over abortion, and it compared so badly that I really had a crisis of faith, as in, first of all, trying to decide, well, is any of this American evangelical big-time Christianity even Christianity? And if it is, then what we were involved with must be some other religion. You know, my dad working on the side of his bed on a tea tray, uh, no secretary, no car, small budget, you know, not much protein in the in the in the diet, lots of vegetables from the garden, um, discussions far into the night on philosophy, gay people welcomed at Labrie. You know, none of that jived with what I discovered in the States when we kind of hit the big time and dad became popular with mainstream evangelicalism. And then, of course, they were very selective in the way they read him, because if you read his pre how should we then live books? There is no politics in it. It's philosophy, it's theology, and you can agree or disagree on any aspect of what he wrote, but nobody would peg that as of the right. Um, so, you know, I, I don't think most people realize that. And in a, in a weird way, it also ties in with Dr. B uh, Reverend Billy Graham, who was a family friend. You know, most people don't realize Billy Graham was pretty ardently pro-choice before Roe v. Wade. Most people don't realize that Dr. Criswell of the Southern Baptist Convention preached a whole sermon on why Roe was a good thing and was pro-choice. So, you know, I, I think, Greg, as you and I look back on our past and we talk about this, we don't want to fall into the trap of sort of looking at evangelicalism as monolithic. I mean, you know, Billy Graham is integrating his rallies in 1954 well, Jerry Falwell is still working on trying to have a segregationist policy in his church. You know, Francis Schaeffer is welcoming gay people to his ministry, where Jerry Falwell is out on the steps of the Capitol holding an anti-quote homosexual rally um, in the same time frame. You know, so when I look back at my dad or the Reverend Billy Graham's efforts to integrate his his crusades or his pro-choice position when he refused to get involved with us when we we're spearheading the pro-life movement as it came to be known. You know, what I see is a lot of evangelical leadership that was not of the hard right. So I like to separate the two, and I guess I do that more now looking back in fairness to people than I used to. And that is, there's there's two issues here. There's the, there's the truth claims of evangelicalism itself, which I totally reject philosophically, religiously, politically, in every way. But then there is the personalities of the evangelical big time leaders, which I really divide into two camps, you know, decent but mistaken people and real criminals, pathological liars, people like Pat Robertson and others who were just out for the money. You know, these are two different kinds of sets of characters. So that's a long winded rambling kind of look at something. But I think it's it's kind of interesting to throw light on on my past anyway from the point of view of having left evangelicalism first, because I was so disgusted with how badly it compared to the simpler version of the non-political version of my parents' own open home ministry, kindness to strangers, and the way they treated people. So, you know, one of those is evangelical Christianity. They can't both be. You know, the big time money grubbing American high powered crap is not the same thing I was raised on. The fact that my dad got branded with it at the end of his life because of his stumbling into the pro-life movement, largely because he was trying to help me in getting these film projects made and I had become involved with Dr. Sievert Koop and the whole thing, you know, that's a whole nother story. But Francis Schaeffer, the Francis Schaeffer I grew up with was not of the right in the sense that present day American evangelicalism is. And that is really clear for anybody who's looked at his work. Right, and I think the the thing that I read into it that really um, the underlying heart of your parents was different than what I experienced. Now, I, it's not that I'm not I'm not trying to paint it in total black and white. I, I certainly saw acts of kindness, but most of the time it was people who came in repenting and saying they'd done terrible things, and then maybe they would be treated kindly. It seems like your parents were just accepting and treating people with love wherever they were. And, and that was a very different, that would have never occurred to me as fundamentalism. Yeah, and of course the irony is that in the 70s when my dad's books were selling a zillion copies and he became famous with the evangelicals in what I'd call the mainstream American evangelical movement, 
you know, then they started showing up at Labrie to try to figure out how he did this, because that was the 60s and 70s. And the generation gap was very pronounced between the hip younger people and then the older people who were sort of losing their younger people to, you know, the feminist movement and the anti-Vietnam War movement and the left and atheism and agnosticism. They would come to Labrie and they would sort of talk to dad and say, hey, how are you reaching these young people no one else is reaching? And of course, the secret wasn't some evangelistic formula. It was that Labrie was really a kind, open community in which people really were accepted where they were. I can remember evangelical students sometimes visiting from places like Wheaton College that had to sign documents in order to attend that they wouldn't you know, date or they wouldn't drink or they wouldn't go to movies or whatever it was. And, and how shocked they would be at the freedom that Labrie had you know, where there were drug addicts from the UK, for instance, who were visiting, who were not thrown out while they actually continued their drug habit. You know, they were up in the woods shooting up and then coming down to Saturday Night Discussions High and nobody got thrown out because dad really believed that biblical idea that, you know, Christ had come to save the lost, not those who were well or already found or whatever. So, you know, it was a real open community. And a lot of evangelicals coming in didn't understand the fact that my father actually was interested in the art he was talking about. He was actually interested in the music. He really liked uh, the, the, the conversations with a lot of the younger people and always said he learned more from them than they learned from him. You know, a lot of the subject matter he got into, whether it was uh, what was going on in the counterculture and all this other stuff, was due to the fact that he was getting asked questions all the time and then he would dig around and try to find answers. So, you know, if he would get a couple of questions on what do you think of Woody Allen's films or Bob Dylan's music, you know, pretty soon he's watching the movies and listening to the music so he can he can answer those questions. Whereas most evangelicals had a kind of a pat gospel presentation. They tried to find clever ways to put it forward, maybe in a movie or music or whatever. But they weren't really involved with the culture. You know, dad's secret, quote unquote, as it might be, in terms of reaching out to younger people who no one else was touching, was that he genuinely liked them. He was genuinely interested in what they were interested. In. And if he had to vote, he far preferred their company than the company of, you know, um, clean cut, middle America, church going evangelicals. Th those were those folks annoyed him when they showed up at Labrie, whereas the hippies and the beats who came before that and the kind of young people traveling around Europe with band backpacks who would stagger into Labrie and crash for a few nights. And then maybe a few of them decide to stay and a few of those decide that they would become Christians in the evangelical sense. You know, those were the people he enjoyed being with. The last thing he wanted to do was sit around and discuss theology with people from um, you know, evangelical seminaries or anything like that. That's not where his interest lie. His interest was in the culture around him. Where, what trajectory do you think your dad's life would have taken if he had stayed out of the politics? Hey, you know, I mean, he would be remembered in a completely different way. And he would, he would have been seen in opposition to the religious right by virtue of his taste in, in art, music, and culture. You know, just remember in 1972, uh, I think that was the date of publication. He had written a book on ecology, calling Christians to a green sense of the world around them, pollution and the death of man. I mean, you know, that well could have been his last book. Uh, it came just before the more political books. How should we then live on art and culture? Would have been seen completely different if the last chapters had not involved Roe v. Wade. And it has to be remembered, the only reason that he was using Roe v. Wade in that book was as an example of what he thought was judicial overreach and the secularization of American culture. So, you know, how should we then it was sort of the watershed because that's the book when he began to become more political. Up to that point, his books could not be read as political. They could be read as conservative in the sense of theology, the inerrancy of scripture, that kind of stuff, but certainly not as political in the sense we mean it now. Do you, I guess I, I, this is uh, sort of jumping ahead, but what do you think uh, your your life, what path would it have taken if you had not gone the, the political route early with the films? And Well, I'd say two things. Good question in terms of career. But, 
you know, Jeannie and I just celebrated our 52nd wedding anniversary. We met when we were 17 and 18. We've been together ever since. We have three grown children and five grandchildren that I do childcare for, uh, the little ones, you know, who live nearby. That that trajectory of my life would not have changed um, in, in the sense that that was unrelated to the film work. I think I would have been probably made a career as an artist, uh, filmmaker or writer or all three, which I sort of did, but it got very derailed with the politicizing of my own life. I think I just would have been much more um, who I became later in terms of being a writer, uh, but it maybe would have been less distracted and done better in the career sense. But my primary interest in life, you know, as they developed finally was not toward career anyway, to be honest with you. You know, my latest book, Fall in Love, Have Children, Stay Put, Save the Planet, be happy is a kind of a manifesto of a non-career oriented life seen through the lens of someone that's done full-time childcare for three of my youngest grandchildren for the last 13 years. Um, you know, my, my interests diverted very quickly away from a sort of a high-powered career-oriented vision of life anyway. I've always been more interested in the relationships in my life and as I've gotten older, more and more and more so all the time. I don't think that would have changed. I think what would have changed is I would have had more success as a painter because I was already having some shows and doing pretty well. Um, I certainly would have been able to work with more concentration on that. And I think once I became a writer, I would have stuck much more with fiction, like my first novels, Portofino, Saving Grandma Zermatt, those books, and less nonfiction, like my memoir, Crazy for God, uh, because I would have had less of an urgent sense of having to tell a story or try to tell the truth about a story that I think was often being misrepresented. So, you know, my, my, my nonfiction would have had a lot less politics to it. It might have been more like the book I wrote with my son, John, who's a, who was in the Marine Corps, called Keeping Faith, a father-son story about love in the United States Marine Corps. Political only in the sense that the Marines serve at the at the request of the president, that kind of politics. But it was about a father's relationship with a son who had gone into the Marines when I knew nothing about it and the respect I gained for him and what he was doing, un, actually very non-political. Um, you know, so that would have been more the direction of all my writing, I think, about my kids, my grandchildren, the life experiences and a lot less politics. You know, so I regret that. I mean, I, I look back on the terrible mistakes we made in being part of a white male led misogyny movement called the pro-life movement. Um, and now with Roe being reversed, you know, come to its fruition 50 years later. You know, that's a huge regret and a sorrow in my life because we were really on the wrong side of history. And now people are really paying for that to the extent that we contributed to that. It wasn't all all us, but there were, you know, we were part of it. But then on the personal side, I regret the wasted time um, I have spent in this life trying to answer questions that wouldn't have been there if it hadn't been for our initial involvement in a very, very bad cause. So there's sort of a double regret there. There's a personal selfish one of, wow, you know, I could have been doing art shows and writing more novels, less having to answer questions about what we were doing in the 70s and the 80s. And then, you know, on the practical side, um, you know, the, the, the kind of wasted life time, you know, when I think of my dad's real interest in art and history, for instance, you know, isn't it a shame he wasn't able to spend more time on that and didn't get embroiled in questions about the inerrancy of scripture again at the end of his life or that sort of thing. Well, I re I apply the same stuff for myself. There's no question that my life would have been simpler, cleaner, happier, better if I had not been embroiled first as one of the activists in the religious right and then spending the rest of my life trying to undo the damage. I mean, obviously that is incredible diversion from what could have been much more productive in areas I care a lot more about. Well, your, your your love for art has has, has been throughout your life, and, and being raised with such an appreciation for art and music. Oh, you didn't miss television. You didn't get to see any television, right? Right. Um, that seems to have really been even even throughout your life seems to have marked um, pretty much everything that you did. I mean, it, it comes up in all the things I've read by you. The art stuff always does. Yeah, and I've been a builder in the sense that I literally build with my hands. I've renovated an old chalet into a 
a barn into a chalet in Switzerland, and then I learn masonry, and I do that, and I cast in concrete, and rebar, and I build stuff, and added a wing to our house. You know, I've always been a hands-on, make stuff, creatively person, whether it's the practical things of building, uh, or whether it is continuing to paint and write. And in terms of my appreciation of what I've tried to hand on to my kids and my grandchildren, same thing, you know, days in the art museum, uh, collecting other people's work as well as of my own, you know, those have been my interests. Um, classical music and jazz and, you know, contemporary stuff as well. But that said, it's the, the, you know, the amount of time that I have spent looking back at something. And of course, part of that is not anything to do with the politics. It's the fact that my father became very famous in a certain group of people. Uh, you know, there's a lot of folks out there who have read my books who have never heard of my parents, believe it or not, because they're not all from an evangelical background. But that said, he was famous enough and influential enough in a certain slice of society that when you run into people from that world, like our talk today, Greg, obviously, it's going to focus back to that, even though the larger public has never heard of Francis Schaeffer. There's a, there's a segment of the public that has, and to them, he's a very intensely important person. You know, and so my obligation to him as a son is to try to set the record straight and say, look, he's not altogether the person that you now think he is because of the religious right involvement, kind of defend his legacy for, for him in his absence and also take some of the blame for derailing his legacy with my own ambitions as a younger man there you know i'm not innocent in this 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 is when i say i've wasted a lot of time answering some of those things it's not like that was somebody else's fault and i'm blaming them i'm blaming myself um you know the stupidity and hubris of getting involved in that religious right movement in the 70s and the early 80s you know, I've spent the rest of my life trying to reckon with it, but it certainly wasted a lot of my time in the end. And I and I look back with horror at the fact that, you know, I think my father's talents were wasted. I think he would have been a really good philosopher. I think he would have been a really great art historian. What a shame that he spent his life, you know, essentially trying to convince people to buy into something that is basically, sorry to say so, completely untrue. Never happened. Wasn't ever a thing. And eventually, you know, the human race is going to get past these crazy things that we've inherited from our primal state of looking for answers. And that's another discussion. But how crazy to have such a talented, intellectually perceptive father who his own life got railroaded at age 17, 18, when he even became an evangelical. And it was, you know, that's his whole life. And it's a pity. And I'm sorry about that. Well, in our, our cultures and subcultures and, and all the way down into evangelicalism, always had this uh, desire for heroes and to create heroes. And that uh, I think that sort of fit into a lot of that stuff. And when you're in your 20s, like you were during that time, if you're like me, when I was in my 20s, I knew everything. I had all the answers if I could read right. the book about the world then. One of the things that, that struck me, too, talking about the probably maybe the widest divide is sexuality and sex. Uh, your mom's wildly open talk about sex to you when you were little and you know yeah. <laughs> that's showing your diaphragm and telling you about her well, and I got your my dad. Book, sex, yeah sex mom and god yeah where I talk but you know grow, growing up in where i grew up it, it, people would blush if the word sex even popped up yeah i mean look let's just cut to the chase here greg my parents francis and nita schaefer were not religious right leaders cut from the same cloth as any of these people they were total eccentrics you know, when they lived in Europe from 1947 on, from then on, they were marching to the beat of their own drummer. These were not like anybody else. Now, we're, none of us are unique. But in terms of the evangelical world, to even call them evangelical leaders is really crazy. Because either they were the only evangelicals and no one else was, if they define the term, or they were not evangelicals. They were something else. So... You know, people try to define them by, well, like, what kind of Christian, Reformed Calvinist or fundamentalist? You know, you, you miss the point. Francis and Edith Schaefer were cultural figures who did their own thing totally, marched to their own beat. And when it came to things like talking about sexuality or my mom's talks on marriage that she gave to young women in Brie and advising them on, you know, sort of sexual things in terms of, of relationships or whether it was the way she talked to her own kids or my dad's interest in art and philosophy or the way the community was open or the way gay people felt welcome there and nowhere else, even though it wasn't an issue. And theologically, dad would have said homosexuality is a sin. But 
he didn't elevate it to be some particular kind of sinner. He would have said, so is gluttony, so is drunkenness, so is, you know, treating women badly, so is racism. You know, it just didn't have that spin that the right gave it later. And in terms of his own behavior and the way he welcomed people, he just wasn't that person. So, you know, I don't know how to put this exactly, but in the sense of what evangelicals mean by are you a Christian, when it comes to all the enculturated stuff, my parents were not. When it comes to this weird twist where, I don't know how to put this, it's like, you know, I had polio. Okay, let me let me give you an analogy. I had polio when I was two. And so my left leg is an inch shorter than my right leg and it's atrophied from the knee down. It did not grow to match my right leg. All right, my dad's theology is like my polio leg. The rest of my body is a whole different person but dad's theology stayed basically with his born again experience when he was 17, 18 years old, and it never grew beyond that. So his intellectual capacity for art history, for, for theater, for mu- music, for movies, for human relationships, for ecology, for loving hiking in the Swiss Alps, he's a huge person. He's not a little twisted, closed-minded, evangelical, pietistic kind of guy, nor was my mom. But when it came to you know the essence of Christianity, you know, his favorite hymn remained, you know, Jesus loves me, this I know for the Bible tells me so. It was a very simple faith. That's who he was. Inerrancy of scripture, he simply meant by that the Bible's true and everything that it affirms. And then he was really down on people who gave that up. But in terms of behaving like an evangelical in the mainstream that held those same views, he wasn't that guy. And they had nothing to do with him. And they and he did not get on with those people. And when they came to Labrie in the 60s and the early 70s, they felt very uncomfortable there. It's like, well, what's going on here? And and they would have seen it as way too wide open and way too much latitude and maybe excused it. Well, that's what you've got to do if you're going to reach, quote, these people, i.e. young hippies and people traveling through Europe. But God forbid we ever allow this to happen at Gordon College or Wheaton College or Biola or any of the institutions from which more students started coming when Slabri got more famous. But before that, those folks weren't there. Once they started coming, you know, once it became an American evangelical sort of stop with a celebrity leader, then of course it all changed. And from then on, it really was much more just a, another version of some sort of retreat center. And that's what Labrie is today. It's it's run by people who are just, it's another evangelical ministry and there's nothing wrong with it. Fine, it's a nice place, but um, it's certainly not what my, it's not this kind of countercultural, interesting, off the chart thing my dad was doing. Well, and reading about your your stories about your mom, and your, your, it's, it's hard for me to imagine your mom being comfortable with the kind of American evangelical women in the 70s and 80s that built this really bizarre cultural golden calf. She certainly didn't even like them. I mean, it's really interesting that we got really uh, strong letters from Mary Pride, who became the kind of godmother to the whole homeschool movement and wrote the textbook The Way Home and all this stuff for Crossway Books, which was also my dad's publisher toward the end of his life. You know, he started out with Hotter and Stoughton in the UK and then University Press and others. But by the end of his life, Crossway was kind of doing it. And I introduced Mary Pride to Crossway. I was her agent. I got her first publishing deal. And she became the kind of touchstone of the whole uh, homeschool movement. And her husband was a computer engineer when computers weren't a thing. I mean, they were just starting to be one. So she went online before anybody else did. She was using the Internet before anybody else was. And her stuff spread like wildfire. And she was good at it. But she couldn't stand my mother's open handedness when it came to sexuality and talking about, you know, wearing nice lingerie and and that sex is a good thing. And Mary would write letters saying, you know, how can she talk this way and be a Christian leader? So even with people that we had helped actually get going when it came to mom on sex or my dad in terms of welcoming them kind of people or his criticisms of middle-class American Christianity as being too bourgeois, you know, that's where everybody, including Mary Pride, would start to bail. And, and, and where, you know, he just never had that same kind of star quality with the hard right 
they wanted a much simpler version. You know, for them, the hero was Dr. Dobson. We're talking about spanking and raising kids and disciplining them and art is bad and modern culture is awful and the hippies were terrible and, you know, but that wasn't that at all. And no, but so, all the people I've come across, uh, Dobson is one of the ones I had the least... I don't know, the least connection or respect for it all. There was something about him that just creeped me out. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well, me too, you know, and that, that was someone who, you know, we sort of made common cause with on certain areas. But I think my father was pretty creeped out as well by a lot of these guys. I mean, after all, he had been living in Europe and lecturing at schools once in a while over here in the States in the 60s, gave him an opportunity to speak to a wider audience like Wheaton College, for instance. But other than that, he wasn't part of the American evangelical mix until the last six, seven years of his life. You know, his trajectory of fame was brief before he died of cancer in 1984. You know, I mean, his first book was only published in what, 1970? He was writing it in 1968. I'd have to look at the first publication date of, of Escape from Reason in about a hotter and stout in England. It wasn't even out in the States. It was in the UK. So, um, you know, that was a short, short run. Did your dad talk about sexuality at all? Or was that something, or just your mom was the one open and talking about that? No, he was open about it. He would always preach these, when he preached a wedding sermon, he always would reserve part of his sermon for talking about the fact that sex was good and you've got to feed each other's needs, and this isn't this isn't optional. You know, he was very robust in in that stuff, and um, uh, people were always kind of refreshingly, uh, you know, amused by that in the sense of like, hey, this doesn't sound like a, a preacher even. I mean, he was just so straight up on that. Well, you know, the churches I was raised in, it was so sublimated that it's, it's created generations of people who are believers that are just so screwed up sexually, they still can't figure it out. Yeah, and and that was that was the kind of people who were coming to Labrie and were trying to, you know, use it as a retreat center and then were so refreshed by it uh, that, you know, they went off strengthened in the area of their, their you know, their bonded relationships and so forth. So... You know, mom and dad did very good work in that area, it, albeit within the constraint, constraint, the kind of confines of talking about people, you know, strictly in terms of monogamous uh, relationships and so forth, but nevertheless very open compared to other evangelicals. You write pretty openly about sex and your own curiosity and stuff as a kid and an adult, and you're, was, that, was that made easier because of the way you were raised? Yeah, I mean, you know, people are always talking to me about, like, they're surprised at where I go with some of my stories in Portofino, Saving Grandmas, Zermatt, you know, very open sexuality, especially in my novels, Zermatt, and then my book about mom and our family, Sex, Mom, and God, and then, you know, just in, in the stuff that I've done, you know, in other areas, like my memoir, Crazy for God, and then again, uh, in this new book, uh, Fall in Love, Have Children, Stay Put, Save the Planet, etc., and I, I'm always like, I don't even know what you're talking about. Like, what other way is there to be? And I guess since it wasn't a journey for me and I was just raised thinking that, you know, uh, that's just a good part of life and you're open about it, um, y- you know, it doesn't seem like a big deal to me. So, you know, in that sense, uh, I never traveled beyond where my parents were. I've always been their child that way. and. Um, stuck with the program, you know, that sex was good and there's nothing weird or embarrassing about it to talk about. And that's the way I inter- I relate with my own grandchildren and so on. And they just all just sort of figured that's the way things are. But obviously, as time went by, I met a lot more people who would come out of your standard issue, American evangelical type background. It's just a completely different experience. So they make a big deal of it. And then, you, you know, you meet evangelicals who have gone off to the evangelical left and they're more progressive and it, but the, the weird thing is that you know they still make a big deal of it they're the ones who are you very meticulous about trying to use all the latest correct terminology on gender and everything and you know almost as if they're trying to keep up with an encyclopedic knowledge of what's you know how, how to speak so that they're not mistaken for anything old-fashioned whatever so they're still hung up on it albeit from the left but still hung up Absolutely. I think one thing we share is, is any, any, it's sort of universal for folks who are raised in conservative, very conservative or fundamentalist, is a lot of magical thinking. Do you ever find your brain trying to drifting into that kind of magical thinking even now? 
Absolutely. I mean, it's knee-jerk. People ask me if I'm sort of an atheist. I describe myself as an atheist who believes in God. And, you know, the best I can do is back in the day, I would have tried to rationalize all these paradoxes and why and so forth and talk about our needs for spirituality as if it pointed to something bigger. I guess, you know, the fact that I'm going to be 70 this year, I'm in a place in my life where honesty comes pretty easily because the alternatives are no good. And it's not even a thing I have to think about to admit that, you know, the reason I still pray or this or that or the other is simply because that's the way I was raised. And I always make a little bit of a joke of it and say, you know, someone says, well, why would you still pray if you don't even believe in God? And I would be saying to them, well, first of all, I don't know whether I do or don't, but I certainly don't in the evangelical sense. Uh, but um, that said, because that's the way my mom raised me. And then I'll look at them and smile and say, you got a problem with that? In other words, give me a better reason for being who we are than the fact that's who we are. So. You know, why am I not? Why have I not spent a lifetime hung up on matters of sexuality? Well, that's how my mother raised me. It's not a question of this is right or better. It's just who you are. So I think I'm a lot readier at this time of my life to admit psychological need. That's the way I was raised. It doesn't have to be logical. It can be paradoxical. Too bad. Deal with it. That's the way I am. Um, you know, back in my day, and I bet you can relate to this, it was always an issue of truth. You know, do we have the truth? Are we right? Is this the way to put it? Is this our is our view of scripture correct? Is this what, you know, I've gotten to a point now where I look around at most things from much more kind of paradoxical position of just saying, hey, look, you know, true or false, let's just admit that these are our needs. You know, I don't, it's like tasting food. You know, if I'd been raised in India in a small village near Calcutta, of course, my taste of food would be different. It would be nothing to do like one day I sat down and I tried all the cuisines from 50 different countries and made a choice. Of course, none of us have that. We are who we are. So when I look at my own knee-jerk superstitions, my own little things I do, uh, I don't try to rationalize them anymore and say, well, this is because it's true. I look at it and I just say, hey, listen, that's who I am. That's how I was raised, um, you know. I don't have a polio leg because I chose to have polio and I think it's a better way, you know, and now I'm going to see, you know, my whole ambition is to be featured in the Special Olympics. I'm not making a career out of my polio leg. It's just a thing that happened to me. Uh, that's just who I am. So, you know, I wear a couple extra socks so my smaller foot doesn't slop around in my shoes. You got a problem with that? That's just who I am. I don't see it as any bigger deal than that. It's just who we are. And so, of course, it's paradoxical because we can't ever work everything out and we're never gonna. And that's the other thing that I've changed as the years have gone by. I've always thought, well, you know, my mom's old saying is, well, we can't know now, but you know, somewhere, someday in heaven, this will all be made clear to us. Well, no, it won't. And A, there's not, we're not gonna be there. And B, even if we were, it wouldn't all be clear to us because nothing's clear. We're, you know, life is a series of paradoxes. And, and uh, you know, I'm ready, very happy to live within that now without saying, well, someday I'll know the answers. No, you won't. Um, you know, it's a shifting target and life is very, 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 very short. And our experiences are incredibly focused in the small, tiny little area in existence we've had. And that's about it. So I don't have any problem just saying, hey, you know, I, I belief and what I do don't match all the time because... I have psychological needs and that's how I was raised. And what am I supposed to do about that? And and what, what, you know, what, I don't mean you, Greg, but one, you know, what is your problem with that? Why would you demand logic when it comes to the life of the spirit? The whole point is it's not logical. So that's, that's why we call it spirituality because we had to come up with a name for that whole weird primal thing we do, you know, and it isn't just that. I mean, I have a little dog I love very much right now. His name is Zip, and he sits on my lap all the time, and we and he sleeps on my bed and so forth and so on. Try to explain that. You know, an overdeveloped, semi-evolved monkey is now loves a tiny little descendant from wolves, and they are inseparable companions. All right, now come up with a good explanation for that. Especially a religious explanation for it. <laughs> or any explanation. Right. I, I mean, I, hey, it, deal with it. I think one of the other things that both our traditions shared to some degree is uh, the idea that church people are the good people and everybody else needs what we have. At what point did it cross your mind that getting everyone else saved was a fool's errand? 
Well, I, I really don't want to come off as 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 much as a smart ass as this will make me sound, but I'm being serious now. I'm sorry, and I'm sorry to use this language, but when I discovered that the the closer I was getting to being um, a leader in that world, the bigger asshole I was becoming. In other words, it was like a drug addict you know, looking at all the score marks on your arm and the veins that are dying. And suddenly you realize, look, this this thing is killing me. So the the more drugs I score, the closer to death I'm getting. Well, similarly, the more high powered my own, quote, success for a few minutes in the evangelical world became the worse of a person I was becoming. And And in addition to which, the club I was joining was populated by, created for and maintained by assholes profiting off people. And so essentially my disgust with what it was turning me into and the realization that this was the norm on this level of big time Christianity turned me off just on the level of being a human being. Like what kind of a father did I wanna be? What kind of a, a husband did I wanna be? What sort of relationships did I wanna have with people? And, and you know, something had to give. So either I had to give in totally to just being that person and, and rationalize it or get out. It really wasn't an intellectual jump for me. It was one of character formation, but also just disgust. Uh, it's a corrupt world run by people who are petty criminals and thieves and who are con artists and who are, you know, in the world of religion, what Donald Trump became to the world of business. And it's exactly the same method of operation. So, uh, you know, for me personally, I can just put it really simply, and that is I love my wife and children more than I love being a leader in evangelical Christianity, and you couldn't do both well. Um, and that was my truth. And then I started looking at it and thinking, well, no wonder the whole thing is completely corrupting. It's like you cannot be a good guy in the mob. You're you're in the mob. You're going to change. And, and evangelical big-time Christianity in America is a form of mobsterism. It is a, it is a con game. And they know it. And the people, the higher up you get and the bigger the bucks become, the more of a con game it becomes. Yeah, I tell people it took me too long to realize that the batteries in my bullshit detector had died. Because uh, I, th I think I sort of, I, I recognized a lot of the stuff early on, but as you fall into it, you, you fall away. I don't want to run out of time here. I do want to talk about abortion a little bit, but I don't want to spend too much time on sure, it. Sure, go ahead. Um, you, you mentioned you, in, in your books, you've mentioned you've, you convinced your dad to kind of jump into the abortion fray, and it became the central fundraising issue of the religious right, and then they added gun gun rights to that and all. At what point did you begin to have doubts about the whole abortion is murder approach that people were screaming? Well, you know, first again, it was very personal. And that is, I got Jeannie pregnant when we were 17 and 18, and then we got married a few months later. And we've been together since, and thank God it's worked out. And we're we're very much in love and we're happy together. But that's just the luck of the draw. <laughs> and the support we had from my parents and the Libri community and many, many things went into that. As I began to reflect on the fact that, you know, we had had a teenage pregnancy and we hadn't aborted our daughter, Jessica, and that she was a very wanted child and we things had worked out, you know, the hubris and stupidity of youth meant that it, at first I was thinking, well, see, you know, we did that. Yeah, we did that with total support from a community, all our bills played, a free place to live, everything, you know, handed to us on a silver platter when it came to just daily needs plus a lot of intellectual stimulation. We're living in the Swiss Alps in a beautiful chalet. Hey, you know, if anybody on earth can work out a teenage pregnancy, that's gonna be it. In addition to which I lucked out because this girl I had a huge crush on and got pregnant turned out to not just only be the love of my life, but I'm 70 years old and she's 71 and there's still no one on this earth I like better. The more I know her, the more I realize that I was literally as lucky as a human being can be. Because what do you know when you're 17? Nothing. So as I began to reflect a few years into my marriage and when Jeannie was having our second child, Francis, and so forth, and this is many years ago now, on how we had been so fortunate in comparison to almost all other scenarios, financial, spiritual, aesthetic, and everything else, the hypocrisy of saying, well, you know, we had a teen pregnancy and it worked out, that was our choice. 
when so few other people found themselves in that position, whether it's a woman with a difficult pregnancy and she has three kids, or whether it's a teen pregnancy, or whether it's someone with something wrong when they do amniotic tests, having to face raising a child with severe disabilities, you know, none of those things. So we were given the easiest road possible with the most support. So my own reflection began just on the unfairness of taking a hard ass position on other people in other circumstances as if anybody else could have done what we did. We were like of the 1% of the 1% lucky when it came to all of it, to love, to relationships, to a child, to whole thing. So who the hell was I to tell anybody else what to do in any other circumstance? All I knew is what we had done in our very privileged, very rarefied, very lucky, very fortunate circumstance. So, you know, this is like some guy that's inherited a billion dollars holding forth on what the homeless ought to do to clean up. I mean, fuck that. I was just, you know, full of just, again, you know, becoming a pompous asshole. So that was one thing. And then the second thing was, is just realizing that the people we were in bed with were a bunch of misogynists. They just didn't like women. I happen to like women. I love my mother. I was raised by three terrific sisters. I've never had a thing about, you know, uh, women being somehow subservient. I never liked that part of the evangelical message. It's never sat well with me just on the gut. And my mom sure never lived according to that. So that as I began to look at this kind of idea that a woman's role is supposed to obey men and everything, well, it sure didn't work in my marriage. Fortunately, I dropped that crap before Jeannie left me. And, you know, we became a different sort of a couple by a lot of hard work because I was getting past what supposedly we officially believed about women being silent and all that. So that was the second strength, was just sort of a rejection of misogyny. And then the third one was just the, the insanity of the pro-life movement itself and the shysters that were taking it over and raising this money, doing all this shit and these far-right Republicans and the way they were using it when they were hypocrites. You know, Ronald Reagan, who we knew, uh, you know, was pro-choice to his very bone marrow as a Hollywood guy. And then he had legalized abortion in California, and then all of a sudden he you know, sees the light because he can get votes with it. You know, these were total flakes. So when I looked at the political side of it, none of these guys were sincere. None of them believed a word of it. Fast forward to Donald Trump, he's pro-choice to the core. He's paid for other women to have abortions. You know, he's philandered his whole life. He's an asshole and a jerk. But all of a sudden he becomes the pro-life hero because he had nominates a couple justices they like from the Federalist Society list. It's hypocrisy all the way down, all the way down. There's not a sound bone in that body. There's not a foundation under any of that mud. It's all shit all the way down. And the minute I began to see that, you know, that it was totally hypocritical, that, you know, um, all the way down. Uh, it was, again, it was just like, is this, is this how I'm gonna spend the rest of my life? I'm gonna lie to people now that I know it's a lie? And, and I made a choice and that was no. And I came to a very different set of conclusions about abortion and human life and all the rest of it that I had before. And I think this, this time around, I you know, came closer. I don't say I had the truth, but in a, in a more nuanced kind of you know, sense, I think I'm a lot closer to the reality of of the way the world is now than I was before, and that's the best I can do. Well, I appreciated the, and I think in one of your books you wrote about how the left dropped the ball on it. Uh, they, as, as the court ruling after Roe versus Wade, if they'd not been so clueless, they could have tapped into the prevailing thoughts of you mentioned uh, W. A. Criswell. Who I don't, did you ever visit Criswell? I've met him back in the day. I don't think he's alive now. But no, I mean, I'm just I, saying back in the day, did you ever visit oh, him no, at his we office? Were at, yeah, no, Dad and I were at his church. We okay. knew him, and he yeah. came He came to our first seminar. Do you remember the hall going to his office? You know, I none of that okay. recalls anything. The reason I always I bring this up is people don't believe it, but there were these giant, I mean like eight foot by four foot paintings of him that looked like they were taken from the children's Bible on. They were him with children rather than Jesus. <laughs> that's the thing about oh, that's great. No, yeah. I never saw that. But anyway, that, the, the likes of Dallas Theological Seminary, uh, Criswell, others talking about that. Um, and they could have at least pointed out that there's actually a instructions on how to perform a, an abortion to our, a wayward wife in the Old Testament. Yeah. But that polarization has increased over the last 25 years. And meanwhile, abortions have dropped to their lowest levels in that time because of birth control, which that group also opposed. Yes. Um, the, uh, 
issue now back in the hands of the states we mentioned earlier where it looks like 25 to 30 states are going to outlaw abortion. I know southern states like where I live are watching it as kind of an arms race to boast who can have the most restrictive policies. But this kind of brings me to the, uh, I'll do this real quick and I'll mention your new book because I want to talk about some of the things in it. Uh, you did mention in one of your books that European nations have legal but more restrictive abortion laws which generally allow abortions up to about 12 weeks. And yeah. that Roe versus Wade, which many people have agreed was poorly written to begin with. Do you think the European laws are the most sensible path forward? Yeah, of, co- of course they were, because Roe, there was a fundamental error made in Roe just on a political level, and that was that it, it, it ignored where this ruling would be interpreted, which is in a country full of evangelical and Roman Catholic Christians. You know, this isn't France, it isn't Sweden. So it's kind of ironic that the that the European leftist countries that are much more secular treaded much more carefully on this issue than the US did. So I, I just think the same kind of hysteria that draws the right at one point also drove the left. And that is, you know, instead of being willing to get half a loaf, you went for the whole thing and then it was overreach. And, you know, Roe, Roe it was not the ideal way the, what was happening already with abortion being legalized in California by Ronald Reagan, with New York, Rockefeller, another Republican. You know, the Republicans were legalizing abortion. You had people like Criswell and Billy Graham who were on the side of choice. So why it was necessary to go to the extent that Roe did and wind everybody up to that extent, I'll never understand. I just wasn't, you know, I wasn't party to that, that decision. It would have, it might in hindsight have been written in a slightly different way that would have weathered better. That's a that is an academic point now because the intent of the anti-choice, anti-abortion movement now is way past Roe v. Wade. They they want America to in essence become a, a biblically based theocracy that has nothing to do with our constitution, but is much more like some sort of old Old Testament patriarchal place. So we're now so far past just these discussions that in a way they're moot point now. Now we're we're into a whole different area, you know, in the same way that the religious right has become increasingly intolerant. I mean, it's all it's all of a piece with the move towards authoritarianism. And it isn't just the US, it's, you know, Hungary and Viktor Orban and Bolsonaro and Brazil, you know, there's a whole authoritarian cult of right wing conservatism that's now global. A lot of it has a religious impetus, say, in the Islamic countries. Um, in in India, a Hindu nationalism that's pushing against all their own democratic freedoms. You know, this is not just an American prob- problem any more than in the 1930s, fascism was just a German problem. It was global. We had big fascist parties in America and in the UK. Spain became a fac- fascist authoritarian country. So did Portugal, so did Italy, so did Germany. Austria was only too happy to sign on. We're in we're at a time of a kind of a global populism authoritarian mold, um, you know. Even China, supposedly the Communist Party, we now have an authoritarian populist leader in China who's starting to look more and more and more like, um, you know, a one-party state dictated to by one man, uh, which isn't even in line with the what the Communist Party was since Mao Zedong. So you know, we got bigger problems here than just U.S. politics. Right. But one of the most revealing news items in the wake of the overturn of Roe Wade offers some echoes into the themes of your most recent book. I know several corporations are vowing to pay for abortion and travel expenses to end their employees to states where the procedure may not be available. But I've not seen any of them offer a sensible paid maternity leave, something every other Western nation offers. You mentioned that in in your book. And I think that, do you think the golden calf of jingoistic capitalism is now America's official religion? Yes, it is. And you know, this book, Fall in Love, Have Children, Save the Planet, Be Happy, is my plea with people to put the, the quality of their relationships first. And it translates into practical stuff. So, you know, where's the paid paternity and maternity leave? And not for a month, but for a year, like in most European countries, where is the healthcare system to support maternity and paternity? You know, where is the revamped educational system? Where is the free childcare for for people so that men and women can work and know that their children are safe and well cared for? Where are the corporations putting childcare facilities right on their factory floor and right in their corporate headquarters for people as many European countries do? You know, across the board, America talks about family values, both on the left and right. 
but the more left-wing corporations don't do much for their employees and the right-wing ones don't either and the males don't take advantage of the few perks there are for new fathers because it'll hurt their career the females are scared to even admit that they're interested in family because of the whole perspective of of having to be career career oriented so you know what the book is about is essentially saying look you know the left and right are similar in the fact that what they both worship is a corporate ideology you know summed up by this idea of lean in for both men and women as if somehow what your job is the size of your paycheck your career description describes you and i'm saying look quit asking kids what they're going to be when they grow up and ask them who they who they are uh not what they're going to do for a career what do you want to be as a human being you know so we're 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 you know what i'm trying to do is bring up an idea that the the real old human construct you know from hunter gatherer forward is not the survival of the fittest it's always been and always will be the survival of the friendliest the people who can cooperate in community and in family so it fall in love have children stay put save the planet be happy is not a book calling on everybody to be a white heterosexual male in a monogamous relationship the way i am far from it i'm saying this applies to everybody whether they are pair bonded and have children or not you know are we in that are we in love with the idea that love is a real thing it's a it's a it's a biological phenomena within our brains that is actually as real as a heart attack and either we are going to live our lives according to that and see things like loneliness and other and as a tragedy and work against that and make connections with people whether we're married or or pair bonded or not same with having children i mean you're being very kind to me today greg by giving me a chance to talk about my book okay today right now you're my caregiver i am your child as it were you're like my mom pinning up something on the refrigerator that i just drew on the kitchen table saying hey look everybody uh, frank did a nice little picture here you know that's what caregiving's about it's opportunity stay put why are we moving around so much chasing career and then complaining because we don't know anybody in our neighborhood and don't have anybody to help us with child care save the planet if our priority was falling in love having children or rather all being caregivers of each other rather than chasing career you know we would be saving the planet because we'd have a we'd have a non-consumerist vision of life based on community rather than consumerism so you know all of this is peace and in the book i talk about childcare with my grandchildren and the pleasure it's given me but then there's some hard science on why that is the case why do we all get so much more pleasure out of the deepest human relationships than we do from anything career or money offers us in terms of simple human satisfaction and all the studies bear that out by the way many of which i cite in my book so that's what the book is about at the end of the day it's not the politics it's not the money it's not the position it's the quality of the of the relationships we have whether that means you're gay non-binary uh, heterosexual married bonded not bonded it it applies to everybody it's where do we put our priorities and how do we find define success is success career and money or is success the quality of community and relationships and it cannot be both we can have bits of both because we all need jobs we all need an income but it's it's how do we define success for ourselves in terms of priorities and that's what the book is about and 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 it's not a coincidence that i come to that at a stage of my life when i've done some living and can reflect on what works and what doesn't yeah i was going to say it's my favorite, my favorite of your books is was there a point there a when you point? began to realize you had sacrificed your happiness for career or you really need to pull it back in was it grandchildren yeah absolutely and i think looking back realizing i was on the road 6 months of the year for big chunks of my children's growing up when i was most active first in the evangelical world but then even in the film business and as a writer and touring colleges and speaking and then the quality of the relationship i have with these grandchildren it's completely different thing because people know when they're your priority i mean they can sense it and of course in sympathy with people who are in their striving years you can only do what you can do so part of that on my part was misjudgment but part of that was just the way the whole of society structured it's what's expected of people who are striving and trying to earn a living and it's a cruel world whether it's a single mom working three jobs with no maternity leave or whether it's a an author trying to sell a book you know nobody is out there rooting for you to have good relationships in a family that works they're all trying to get their their little pound of flesh out of you uh or have you earn or whatever it may be you know it's completely the wrong lens and so my book is an an effort 
to take a step in a direction of changing that. Well, it resonates with me. I was raised by a corporate dad, good man, loving man, did a lot of good things, but he worked daylight till dark. And I, I was one of those nurturing dads who chose my kids over cultural definitions and career success. And it is a challenge. There were financial struggles, and but the investment in my children really paid off. So that's something I really appreciate in the book. Women have particularly been pushed aside. Uh, you know, freed male slaves had to vote 50 years before women in the state in which I live didn't even ratify the 19th Amendment until 1968. Uh, yeah. The church has been, you know, a part of this oppression with sort of the extreme submission foolishness. Uh, do you see any change in Christian churches as it comes to the treatment of women? Well, you know, there are people there are people who keep making an appeal to Scripture based on a, a different reading. You know, Beth Allison Barr has written this book called "Making Biblical the Making of Biblical Womanhood." Womanhood, but the problem is, you know, what's in the Bible really is in the Bible, and I, I just would hope that evangelical women who want something better don't just try to reframe what the Bible quote unquote says to them, but actually ask the bigger question, and that is, you know, why are we allowing this book, this conglomeration of, of myth and stories and human tradition that was gradually put together, you know, never was delivered as a whole book by God or anybody else. It's a, it's a, it's a series of texts that were put together by Jews and then later by Christians into a canonical form that now we call the Bible. You know, what's that got to do with anything in terms of how we treat people or women or anyone else? Why are we trying to parse what Paul really said rather than saying, hey, look, let's get more basic here. If you want to have a relationship with someone, you know, you got to decide whether the mirror you look in is your own ego or their happiness. You can't do both. You know, I mean, it's much more basic than all this theological folder roll. So. I just think the faster that women and families get away from the idea that somehow they should be dictated to by quote-unquote biblical Christianity as to what the proper role of a woman is. I mean, what bullshit is that? The proper role of a woman is to live to the maximum ability of her talents and connection like anybody else. We're all on the same page here. All right, so, let's, let's jump into a speed round because I know you've got, speaking of family, you've got family commitment shortly here. Yeah. Uh, so let's try to answer these quickly. I've only got three more questions. Uh, I like your phrase that you write, the redemptive power of living nostalgia. Ex explain what you mean by that. Well, you know, the most powerful force in our life is nostalgia. I mean, it's like the smell of something baking reminds you of your mom's kitchen or whatever is an evocative moment. And living nostalgia is this, this power of recurring themes rather than looking for something new and 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 uh, whatever it may be novel understanding that the things that last are the things that are repeated most love for instance um, care and commitment to family living nostalgia is, is living within those cycles of repetition that take on more and more and more meaning as the years go by so it's something in that direction okay having spent your life, much of your life in other parts of the world, if you could magically relocate your entire family, children and grandchildren somewhere else other than America, would you choose to do that? No, I wouldn't. Um, I, I, I think, you know, in my particular circumstance as a writer, I, my favorite country on earth to visit and to be in and what I love most about everything about it is Italy. And of course, I'm like millions of other people that way. But you've got to be, you know, you've got to start with Etruscan history through the Greco-Roman period and then do 2,000 years of, <laughs> of history. And eventually you have buildings that look like they do, um, you know, there, built of old Roman brick and all the rest of it. But realistically speaking, no, I, 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 would, I would rather, you know, stand and fight where I am. And, and um, I'm an American citizen. My son served in the Marine Corps. I'm here. In the best of all worlds, uh, you know, I'd be living in Renaissance Italy in, in Florence at the time of Lorenzo de' Medici as part of the ruling family with modern medicine. But that's not exactly realistic. <laughs> right, if, you, if you share your mom's genetic longevity, you may have 25 years or so left. How do you want to spend I would like that. How do you want to spend those years? In all honesty, I, my, I only literally, literally only have one priority in my life, and that is to try to give my children and grandchildren the greatest level of support possible and then extend that to other children and family and friends as those connections widen because they face a hard future and a lot of that hard future is the fault of my generation and the only thing I can do is send them out knowing that they were loved, that they were cared for, that there are a few people in their life who really are dependable and I want to be one of them and to literally put their interests ahead of mine at every single time without any doubt at all. If I can 
contribute that. I can't be there when they hit the hard things when I'm gone, but I can leave them with a legacy that they can trust. Finally, I asked this of all my guests, when was the last time you laughed so hard you had to catch your breath? <laughs> the last time I laughed so hard when I catch my breath was probably yesterday with my wife talking about, you know, the crazy stuff my grandchild Nora did. Um, we went to a Greek Orthodox service where they anointed her with some holy oil and the priest, because I like Greek Orthodox liturgy, and he said this was for healing of mind, body, and spirit. And she had fallen off a climbing frame a couple days before, and her back was a little sore. And she sat back down again and twisted around a couple times. She's eight years old, and she wasn't in any way trying to be a smart aleck. And she looked at me and muttered, well, that didn't work. <laughs> <laughs> she tried it out. I mean, the priest just said healing mind, body, and soul, and she gave it a shot. It was worth a shot. Yeah, Frank, and I, I said, have, you know, when I she's have... a 90-year-old writing her memoir, the, and and the chapter called "The Day I Lost My Faith," it'll be it'll that'll be the story. Yeah, that didn't work. As I said, I really enjoy the new book, "Fall in Love, Have Children, Stay Put, Save the Planet, Be Happy." You can find it on Amazon and everywhere else. Okay, well, listen, thanks so much, uh, Greg, and take care, and let's let's talk again sometime. Well, let's do it. As I said, there were so many things in so many of his recent books we did not get to. I read through three and now four of them since we've talked and you can find them on Amazon and any other place that sells books. I, I think you will find him a fascinating read and you also will see him occasionally on some of the networks talking about current events and politics and things that are going on. He has he's a voice that needs to be heard and it's so good to hear a man who's found peace and love and happiness and by staying put, saving the planet and falling in love. Well, that's it for this edition of Thinking God Podcast. Hope you'll join me again next time. do